Hello and welcome to episode 39 of the Ask Mr. DNS podcast. I'm your co-host Matt Larson along with Cricket Lou and a whole room full of other people because we are at Infoblox's Santa Clara headquarters. Uh, we've just had uh, a secret DNS insiders <laughs> meeting discussing DNS insider stuff all day. They knew that there was a secret DNS cabal and <laughs> well, they always suspected anyway. Well, it's it was meeting here. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we thought it would be fun and we've done this in the past. Yeah. And we in fact we, in the past we said what it was. It's the Inside Baseball event that Dine and uh, Infobox co-sponsor. So we just um, had an interesting day talking, and we have uh, other folks here, and so we thought, let's record a podcast with everybody here. So why don't we go around the room, and you know it's Cricket and me here, and then everyone else, just say who you are and anything else you want to say to our dozens of listeners. The dozens of listeners, I think, are are here. (laughs) Then it won't be a surprise. I'm Andrew Sullivan, and I work for Matt. (laughs) Uh, I'm Chris Beavers, and uh, I work for a company called NS1. I'm Olo Gumason, and I work for Cloudflare. I'm Schumann Huck, and I work for a big DNS company. <laughs> uh, David Lawrence, Akamai. Uh, Dave Dagan from Georgia Tech. Uh, Casey DCO from Verisign. I'm Rob Fleischman from Akamai. And Dwayne Wessels from Verisign. All right. Well, we have at least one question in the mailbag. Let me let me open it. I think it's not just at, at least. It's also at most one question, isn't it? <laughs> All right. Uh, this one comes from uh, a colleague of mine, Donald Rudder. And uh, Donald asks, regarding your conversation around NSEC records and uh, recursive slash authority conversation for the random subdomain attacks, he said, wouldn't this solution require the use of NSEC rather than NSEC 3 and consequently open one up to zone enumeration risk? And remember how NSEC records can be used in a chain to figure out sort of all of the domain names that are used within a zone and also what record types are attached to those domain names. Um, so what do we have to say about that, folks? Well, didn't we say that... Um well, I, I'm not understanding his question, actually. But, well, oh, so wouldn't it require, is he saying, wouldn't it require NSEC? But we didn't say it. He says rather than NSEC 3, but we didn't say anything about NSEC 3. Well, we didn't say it, right? We didn't say uh, NSEC rather than NSEC 3, but uh, his point, and, and to go back to the last episode and talk just briefly about what this is in relation to, there are these DDoS attacks on the Internet today where uh, folks bombard uh, recursive name servers with queries for randomly generated label dot some some domain name, and all of these get funneled into the recursive name servers uh, that that serve the zone with that domain name. There's no caching possible really because the domain names are are randomly generated. They have these random labels prepended to them, and the aggregate load causes the authoritative name servers to slow down, and that has this ripple effect where the recursive name servers in turn slow down because they're spending a lot of time working on resol- resolving these recursive queries and not getting any answers. And in the proposal that you had seen at the last OARC meeting was um, for zones like that that actually use DNSSEC to enable the recursive name servers 
to use cached NSAC records to synthesize NX domain responses, basically. Right. To say, this, this uh, NSAC record says that there's nothing between uh, the apex of the foo.example zone and www.foo.example. Therefore, I know that there's no c.foo.example, and I don't have to send a query to the authoritative name servers to know that. I can just say NX domain. And so Don, Donald's uh, question is, okay, yeah, that would work if it was NSAC, but probably wouldn't work if you were using NSAC3 to sign foo.example. So we actually have here the person I talked about it with at the ORC meeting in Amsterdam, and that's Olafur. So, I mean, Olafur, what's your reaction to Donald's question? Well, uh, let's stay on the topic that is here, the NSEC versus NSEC 3. Um, NSEC 3 works just as well as NSEC because uh, both form a chain of names. One uh, chain, the NSEC one, is just uh, sorted order, and the other one is hashed order. Mm-hmm. So the resolver to map into the NSEC chain, NSEC three chain, all has to, has to follow the NSEC three param record that's at the top of the apex to hash the names that came in on the query, and it can map it into uh, a gap. Right. So he hashes c dot foo dot example or or something yeah. like that. That turns yeah. out so to some hash value. So the only difference from a resolver point of view, it is it needs the NSEC uh, three record or equivalent of it uh, to answer it. Okay, so uh, it's slightly more work, mainly the hashing. Uh, uh, it opens the resolver up to a certain kind of an att- another attack vector, which is if the zone in question has lots of iterations in the hash function, then the resolver spends an awful lot of time on doing it. One of the reasons why I don't like NSEC3, period. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Also, the, yeah. That, right, so NSEC3 param, the NSEC3 param record has that iterations field, and that's how many times you have to chew through that hash function yes. to, to be done, yeah. basically. Yeah. So one question that comes up to me, actually, with in uh, regards to NSEC3, and this is the, the one addition that it has is the closest and closer uh, proof, the extra NSEC3 record, NSEC record that comes along to show where the closest and closer is uh, in there because you might have multiple labels below a given name, which... You don't need that NSEC because it's apparent where you are, but because you're hashing the entire name uh, in mm-hmm. NSEC 3, you don't have that. So the question is, uh, without having uh, looked at that closest and closer, is the recursor still going to have to go out and ask those questions uh, to find out if you do multi-label names, which some of these attacks actually do? Mm-hmm. Uh, so is, in other words, is the recursor going to have to go out anyway uh, because it's going to have to find out if there's a closest and closer just by adding a second label? Possibly. And I, I have to say, <laughs> possibly. But, uh, but the answer is that uh, in any case, it will basically have to reconstruct the whole NSEC or NSEC3 chain for the areas that the random domains are into. Yeah, and NSEC3 always kind of uh, makes my mind hurt after it I think you. about it. So it's, it's not really a, a simple answer when you start bringing in some of these extra things. But yeah. uh, that was the one thought that came, and the one way that I, I can think of uh, personally that where NSEC 3 is, is slightly different uh, than the answers you get from normal NSEC. Mm-hmm. I'm actively afraid of NSEC 3. <laughs> it doesn't just make me brain hurt. I'm, I fear it. 
there actually are support groups for NSEG 3 now. <laughs> oh, really? In your local yeah. area. Yeah. 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 Only so, in major but, metropolitan <laughs> areas, or yeah. are they everywhere now? The no, success. There's one, there's, there's one in Middlesex, Vermont. It's crazy. Oh. <laughs> it has yeah. one member. But, <laughs> but you know, this is a, this is a classic uh, decision point for recursive DNS. Which is, you know, are you going to trade CPU for network, right? I mean, you know, these mm -hmm. these records required extra CPU, and uh, you know, the answer is we don't know if it's a win. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just uh, wait till the NSEC five comes. <laughs> <laughs> so, in in both the NSEC case and the NSEC three case, there's also the matter of the. Uh, authoritative services that are using some type of white lies scenario, whether it's the NSEC with the, um, what do they call it, the Epsilon uh, mm -hmm. signing, or or then there's the NSEC 3 with the little white lies, where they're basically taking uh, the hash of the name you're looking for, and uh, and then they uh, put change just one one bit on either side of it to, to give you a new name. Of course, um, those types of scenarios would make it difficult, but that that's all in the hands of the authoritative if they wanted to decrease their chances. Uh, supposing recursive servers would actually uh, do this, they would have to then you know, make the change on their end to, to make it more feasible for them to implement it, I guess. This also makes the assumption that the authoritative server is not part of the attack. Right, right, which, by that's the way, true. is uh, yet another vector of attack where yep. you create a, a, a zone purposely configured, perhaps with a large iteration value for NSEC 3, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, perhaps with made-up NSEC 3 records, who's to say, and right. then uh, perform this attack, and now you've really made life terrible for the recursive server. Right, mm -hmm. right. I think we did talk in the last episode about some of the mechanisms that were being introduced, at least to the bind name server, to, to combat this. The fetches, fetches per server, mm -hmm. I think, and, uh, fetches per zone. and fetches per zone, yeah, although those are... I guess still a little bit unproven. Um, I think those those switches are in maybe by 9.10. Yeah. Right. Well, should we talk about some of what we talked about today? Yeah. Kind definitely. of like a, a recap? Sure. Several interesting threads of discussion. I thought an interesting one was about um, sort of problems with the DNS protocol. I mean, you get a group of people like us together, and that's, I think, going to be the inevitable topic of discussion, all the things that we we don't like and what we would change if we had it to do all over again. And then you start to talk about, well, could you do it all over again? And uh, one of the ways the conversation went was there's obviously a, a, a lot less traffic from recursive to authoritative than there is from stub to recursive. And in fact, we're already seeing some bilateral agreements to do certain kinds of um, changes in the protocol or, or changes in behavior. An example would be um, EDNS client subnet that um, recursives and authoritatives will agree to exchange that information. And so if you sort of follow that to one logical conclusion, well, would it be appropriate to have another protocol that has some of those additional features built into it or is the same or, or different? But so we sort of looked at that problem space. And one of the things that got us talking about that was, um, Rob, if you don't mind talking about it, what you found when you tried to enable EDNS client subnet just on its own without a bilateral agreement. Sure. Um, you know, we did some experimentation here at Akamai where, uh, you know, during the course of our implementation in our recursive resolver uh, to see what would happen if we just sent every request during the recursive process uh, enabled with EDNS client subnet. And what we discovered was due uh, to middleware, for lack of a better word, 
those recursive queries were unsuccessful, a large percentage of them. Right. You, you, you believe that it was middleware, we right? We believe so. It, yeah. you know, of course, it's very hard to tell. You know, the, the recursive server, of course, sends uh, UDP packets, DNS requests out to the Internet. They uh, are all augmented with uh, the EDNS client subnet. They may make their way to the authoritative server. Maybe the authoritative server answers. Maybe those answers get back to us. So there are a lot of hops in between. Usually, it's very common for folks to have load balancers, firewalls, DNS inspection, hardware, software that would view this uh, query uh, or response as bad. Mm -hmm. And in addition, um, there uh, during the recursive process, there can be servers uh, along the uh, along the way toward your answer that will give you an error. Mm-hmm. Thus, the, the recursive process fails. So you as the client ask this question, and turning this feature on in the recursor for all servers just results in no answer. So, yeah, so what was your definition of failure? Our definition of failure was really that, you know, the one that our customers would care the most about, which is did they get an answer? You know, they asked a right. question, and they didn't get an answer. So as a vendor, we discovered, well, if, if that's the case, we obviously can't turn that on. So, uh, you know, the, the, I was basically naive and thought that, you know, it would all just sort of work. Um, and the answer is it doesn't. So, uh, you know, whitelists, two-way whitelists, you know, it's, it's really become, uh, uh, you know, that's really going to be the, the way of the future for ECS, I believe. And that is that, you know, there are authoritative servers who are going to say, these are the only clients that can send me these queries. Right. And, of course, in the recursive business, we're only going to send those queries to certain authoritative servers. And and, and that's somewhat unintuitive, right? Because you might think it would just be, hey, you're the recursive server. Who are you going to send ECS to? Only send ECS to people that are ready for it. But the reverse is actually a concern because if you host a large set of uh, customers, zones, you might not want to give out to just anyone where you send people. Right. Right. You know, so there's actually that reverse whitelist feature, which is something that I think authoritative servers will start doing as this feature gets more popular. Right. Well, so, so then the, the notion, though, was, was maybe to have a, a completely different channel between recursive name servers and authoritative name servers that might, um, might support a, a richer set of maybe, maybe DNS2, right? Well, and some new base okay. assumptions. Like you could, you could assume the bar was now higher with whatever, whatever default or not, not default, but whatever the new ground rules where right. you could assume certain uh, certain capabilities or certain understandings. You must speak the protocol at least this well to use this channel. Yeah. Right. I, I think you're right. You know, I mean, that's sort of the frustration out of this exercise. You know, I did this exercise. I naively thought that, you know, the, the default in DNS would be I got a query. It had some options I didn't understand. That's okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll do the best I can and send you an answer. And... Um, you know, obviously that, that didn't turn out the way I, I had hoped. So I was a little frustrated with that. And I think that, you know, there, there might be value, not just for EDS client subnet, but for lots of things, to have a persistent channel between recursive and authoritative server. One of the interesting things that came up in that conversation was comparing and contrasting to HTTP, both as a protocol and as a de facto new transport layer that um, it does not suffer a lot of the problems that DNS does in trying to introduce new features. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is less clamped down on in firewalls and middleware and so on that some of 
that drives his frustration with the DNS is, okay, so how do we get out of these handcuffs and should we look at, you know, being able to establish a separate channel that works as effectively as HTTP in this regard? Right. And there was also, I think, the, the notion that it might help under, for example, DDoS attacks if you were able to easily separate and prioritize traffic right. um, that, that you knew was coming from kind of a trusted partner rather than from just, you know, J-random querier out there on the Internet and certainly using a, a different port or using a different uh, protocol entirely would make, make that possible. I think that would be one of the biggest wins, actually. Yeah. Well, that was what the SMTP people did years ago, right? That was the point of the submission port was to say, okay, well, yes, this is email, but it's not like port 25. Mm -hmm. It's something I know who you are, and if you're not willing to tell me who you are, then I'm not willing to take your mail. Right, right, right. And it's interesting, you know, there is a tremendous amount of concentration within the DNS business um, because there are, are really big recursive operators, um, OpenDNS, Google Public DNS, and there are big hosting providers, many or even most of whom are represented here at this table. Um, there's, there's a tremendous amount of concentration. So by upgrading the channels just uh, between, you know, pairwise, the recursive operator, the big recursive operators and the big authoritative operators, you could probably get a lot of mileage out of that. Our, our, our anecdotal evidence is we used to, um, we used to study, actually with Dwayne's help, we used to study the, the uptake of various, um, uh, various protocols within DNS infrastructure. And between two yearly studies, when we were looking at, at uh, in our, I forget, was it a, it was a full sample of, of COM, NAT, and org subdomains that we looked at for IPv6 capable name, authoritative name servers? Oh, you're really testing my memory. It's been like, <laughs> it's been more than a year, so. It, it was a long time I, ago. It probably, it probably was a full sample of, of those yeah. names, yeah. But the, the results, I remember, went from fairly low single digits to 25% of of our sample of authoritative name servers, and we went when we went back. Right. And doing what? Are we measuring? Looking for zones or domains that had at least one IPv6 reachable name server. Okay. Yeah, and and when we went back and looked at the the source data to figure out why there was such a, an enormous jump, um, the uh, the adoption of IPv6 by GoDaddy alone. Yeah. accounted for a very large percentage of that. And then there were two other companies. There was OVF, I think, or somebody like Sounds that. Sounds familiar, OVH. yeah. OVH, OVH, right, a registrar, like a European registrar. And then there was also, I think, another European registrar that had, had basically deployed IPv6 by default on their authoritative name servers. And to see the needle swing that much... Just because you know three operators, two of which I'd never heard of before that point, <laughs> had had deployed IPv6, that was you know that was staggering. Yeah. Dead air. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> so it seems we'll like what it this out. means for this idea, right, is that um, there's hope for it because there's a relatively smaller kind of set of pairwise interactions that have to happen. Yes. Um, to make it interesting. The other thing I would say about this, we've talked about persistent connections between recursives and authoritatives as being an interesting idea. We've talked about you know, being able to do new stuff in, in a protocol or the protocol um, because it's a different channel. I think our main interest in it as an authoritative that's trying to do crazy new stuff with DNS is that it opens up the velocity with which we can try new things um, you know, over some new protocol mechanism. I think the, the idea of like an HTTP header um, 
is such a flexible and simple idea, uh, but that kind of notion can make its way into a protocol like this, and then we don't need to necessarily all be in agreement on something before we try it, right? Yeah, and, I, yeah. and we talked about that earlier today. I think that's a critical attribute of any new protocol, that it be extensible, as we've clearly seen, as Rob's example points out, you know, the current DNS protocol is clearly not anymore, right? You can't. Uh, you can't easily, because of um, various deployment issues, stuff in the way, or for whatever reason, what, it doesn't even matter, for whatever reason, uh, experimentation like that just, just doesn't work. But if we had a protocol where everybody buddy went into it knowing that the intent was to iterate and have it be extensible and that there were clear understandings that, you know, things you don't understand you ignore or, you know, whatever, that would really, I think, that that would be required. That would be one of the points of doing it. Mm-hmm. It's also, I think, an interesting way to imagine, uh, I think, a relatively graceful migration away from the current DNS infrastructure to a new one. And obviously, this new one, uh, the reason that we'd be creating this new infrastructure would be because it offered some pretty compelling advantages over the existing infrastructure. And then, you know, if, if the major players are doing it, if you want to be in the DNS game, you'd want to, you know, speak the same protocol with the major players. It would become kind of... Uh, you know, you must be at least this tall or be in the DNS business, right? And so I, I would ma- imagine anyway that, uh, for example, Infoblox would, would want to be able to provide those sort of capabilities to, to our customers and, you know, all of our competitors would. And, you know, your competitors in the cloud-based DNS business would probably do the same thing. Well, it's what all the cool people will be exactly. doing. Exactly. All the cool kids are doing it. <laughs> the cabal. <laughs> <laughs> first rule of cabal was that you don't talk about cabal. Nope. <laughs> Too late. We might have to edit that part out. <laughs> well, what else did we talk about today? Aside from that, I was trying to think of uh, the new TLDs. <clears throat> that was one of the most recent things yes. that we talked about. On <laughs> and basically seemingly at the moment, though, it's still early to tell, but there seems to be widespread agreement that they're kind of irrelevant. Um, it'd be interesting to see what the actual uptake is, but so far from an operational perspective, we're not seeing a lot of meaningful impact from them. Well, you don't see them in the wild. I mean, in terms of, like, passing the billboard test. Right. You know, has anybody has anybody seen one anywhere, even remotely prominently? Where I've seen a ninja one. Okay. Yeah, prominently but is the keyword. Yeah. You're, not, yeah. you're not supposed to see the ninja. Exactly. <laughs> Something's gone terribly wrong. Yeah. It's always supposed to be printed in black lettering on a black background. <laughs> there was one prominent mention, I think, on the um, what's the HBO show? Silicon Valley. It was a .xyz uh, second level domain that was prominently featured and then talked about various elements. That was the only one I can Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I think really the new TLD that has gotten the most attention is the one that has attracted, you know, um, questions about their business practices right. more than, and I'm not going to mention who it is because we don't want to give them any more publicity. Uh, and, and because we believe they have a raft of lawyers. <laughs> you know, if we gave them any more, any more publicity, that would really suck. <laughs> In New York, the, the NYC domain has had quite a publicity push recently, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. we've seen a lot of, kind of local uptake. Um, but of course, this is a very restrictive um, 
new TLD, so mm-hmm. uh, you know, geographic restriction yeah. on who's allowed to have it. You have to have it. It's only relevant to 8 million people. <laughs> <laughs> but you're, is the idea that anybody who has, say, uh, some operation in New York City or lives in New York City could potentially get a subdomain is not purely used by, for example, the city? No, no. It, I mean, for example, I can go buy a .nyc domain okay. if I like. You mean you personally? I have an address. I okay. personally. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, we've seen, a, I'd say, a reasonable uptake, um, and there's a lot of marketing effort going on, um, you know, on billboards um, and things like that to buy your .nyc domain. Okay. What happens if you move that? I mean, we don't want to raffle. <laughs> this, but you have to give it In up? the rabbit hole, we okay. go. <laughs> With this group? No. <laughs> I think another line of discussion we had earlier in the day that was pretty interesting was just around sort of common attack patterns we're seeing or, um, you know, maybe recent sort of security-related insights we've had. Um, So we talked a little bit about DDoS and about the use of TXT records in some some unfortunate ways and, and things like that. Might be worth recapping a little bit. Yeah, I mean those are those are certainly interesting topics, and and uh, Dave here is is something of an expert on those. Uh, well, gosh, thanks. Um, I said yeah, something so our, of an expert. Some, wasn't, that, <laughs> wasn't, wasn't that flattering? I'm afraid. It's important you qualified. That, um, well, yeah. So I think our earlier discussion had focused on um, uh, some of the techniques that uh, uh, malware was using to encode uh, drop binaries into a series of text records. And um, other malware would look up these text records in sequence and assemble the answers in memory and then essentially unpack them and jump to that location in memory. And um, the advantage that it's thought that this would provide is that the uh, drop site, the command and control site that needs remediation is, is effectively a recursive cache. Um, and so uh, very large global recurses would do a fine job of making sure that these records are persistently in cache and the uh, authority that would seed them originally then has this um, ability to become stealth at will. They can simply come online, set very long TTLs, turn their authority off, and from a forensics point of view, it can be difficult to ascertain the source and origin or variability of this. Um, I think the one uh, fault that, that is overlooked by that attack is that there's a great agility in cache line management um, and many operators can purge individual cache lines without having to restart. And uh, so there is um, a policy response that could be affected to that. We were just observing that in, in passing and noting it. Right. So, so certainly, I, I think one of the advantages of tucking all of that data in a recursive name server's cache is that not many people are thinking to look at a recursive name server's cache. In fact, I imagine most operators of recursive name servers rarely, if ever, look in their cache. And the the malware sitting on, for example, the inside of a network uh, might well have a, a, a clear ability to reach out and query a recursive name server out on the internet, whereas it may, might not be able to reach out via HTTP or some arbitrary TCP-based protocol. Yeah, right? that, that, that's correct. And, and of course, the other advantage is that, that, by definition, the text records are unstructured. Mm-hmm. And so even DPI-type inspection of that data would be extremely difficult. Yeah. I remember, Cricket, that also brought up, uh, you know, a similar issue, which is really just, in general, the size of some of the records that are allowed today in DNS. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you had a, you had a story about 
um, a, a rollover of, of, I think it was the .gov TLD that had their their responses explode, right? Exactly. You know, uh, for a, a couple of weeks, you know, we were seeing um, you know, 14, 16K size UDP responses to tiny queries. Yeah. And, um, you know, that that is a dangerous thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, but it's a general problem. As Dave pointed out, it's, you know, it's, it's just a more efficient uh, attack vector mm-hmm. um, that DNS provides. And even better amplification than NTP attacks are currently given. Excellent amplification. 20 bytes to 16K, you know. Yeah, that's X-ish. amazing. <laughs> yeah. That's some good amplification. Uh, globally available everywhere, you know, that's, that's good. <laughs> For some definition of good. Exactly. exactly. And similar to Dave's observation about, you know, the bad guys standing up authoritative servers to do their attacks, um, another class of attacks that we've seen over the past year are what Rob has affectionately dubbed sandwich attacks, where the attacker is trying to take out a recursive and controls both the uh, client and the authoritative. And so on the authoritative, he can slow down response times or force multiple lookups to be, you know, hung up in, in transit at the same time. And uh, we saw a number of, um, you know, DNS servers have to respond to this uh, because it really had uh, managed to take advantage of their algorithms for keeping multiple in-process in queries. Mm-hmm. And so unbound bind, um, NSD, I believe, all had to respond to that, or unbound. Yeah, yeah, probably not NSD. Right, right. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It was kind of a rough year last year. 2014 was a pretty rough year as far as DNS attacks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you must have seen the same things in Infobox. Yeah, I, you know, certainly as a, a proxy for our customers, we we did see a lot of them. I mean, a lot of you guys are actual operators and probably had much more frontline experience with it than, than we did. And, you know, this was uh, something that... Uh, brought up another topic that we talked about today a little bit, which was uh, call it the idea of information sharing among um, operators uh, uh, who are all secondary um, for a domain that's under attack. Um, and so, you know, this, this turned out maybe to be a bit of an interesting topic that there have been attempts at this kind of information sharing in more ad hoc ways in the past. And, um, uh you know, one of the most interesting things I think came out of that conversation is just the, the sort of realization that um, all the operators have different thresholds for what it means to be um, kind of in the danger zone, so to speak. Right. Um, and, you know, whereas Cloudflare might have a very high threshold or maybe have just automated all of this stuff away, um, smaller authoritative operators and, and others. Um, you know, might might have the red alert going off at a at a much lower threshold, and so it's hard to decide how and when to share information. Yeah. Um, well, and relatedly to the extent that information has been shared in the past, it's all been um, built on you know the personal relationships we've developed over two decades of doing this. Right. Or membership in right. the cabal. Right. Rather than having <laughs> some you know clear, more generalized way to reach people in the right roles, even if you don't have a pre-existing relationship with them. Well, and even membership in the cabal is not necessarily <laughs> helpful in an operational context in real time. <laughs> what, do you want to go on vacation? <laughs> Sorry, not allowed. No one... Second rule of cabal, you're not allowed on vacation. <laughs> oh, damn it, nobody told me that. <laughs> uh, there was also another part of this discussion, which was uh, DNS people can't solve all the problems. 
like when a big flood attacks are coming, maybe uh, we want to actually just turn off routes or push the filtering rules upstream so the traffic never hits the, uh, our sites. So there are multiple ways that we can help mitigate those, but right now the economy is against us. It's too cheap to do stays an attack right now yeah. versus the cost of defending. Yeah, it's quite true. We also talked about a little bit about the Internet thing of Things and the proliferation of devices that use DNS. Yeah, we and did. What does it mean to have your light bulb doing DNS queries? <laughs> <laughs> or will your light bulb do DNS queries at all or bypass DNS or something like that? And it seems like, you know, maybe unsurprisingly, the opinion in this room is that, you know, DNS is probably here to stay and is a, a critical layer of indirection uh, for, for things um, going forward. Uh, I think. Yeah, just how much do actual humans end up typing domain names going forward? We talked about apps and how, you know, if you think about your iPhone and about those apps, you know, you don't see domain names, you see apps. Yeah. The apps do send a whole heck of a lot of queries, though. I remember mm -hmm. using the, the Facebook app at one point and scrolling through a, my timeline with uh, query logging running on my home name <laughs> server. And boy, every time I scroll through, I just see my name server hammered with queries as you know, images and ads and all of these other things came up. Maybe content too? Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess the, the images may have been content. Just cats. <laughs> just cats, cats and more cats. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's surprising because in, in a case like that, um, the user may not be directly aware that DNS is actually being used. You don't have necessarily an experience of, of, of you know, see domain names. You're not typing domain names in, but DNS is certainly uh, crucial in, in those sorts of interactions, too. And we did talk a bunch about, um, you know, where the DNS traffic is coming from and how it's grown um, recently. And this was the source of a lot of it that, you know, every, every web page or page view has a lot of... Uh, assets behind it that are resulting in a lot of different DNS queries, and so we've seen an expansion on that side. Um, on the authoritative side, we're seeing a lot of growth because of um, TTL reduction and um, more dynamic decision-making at the DNS layer. Um, so just a lot, of, a lot of new traffic in general. And uh, tracking in the domain names themselves. Mm -hmm. yep. The high degree of variability in you know, prepended data. Label generation or something like that. Yeah, we talked talked a little bit, bemoaned the fact that most application developers really have no sympathy for DNS infrastructure whatsoever, and if they can wring uh, you know a, f a few milliseconds uh, of of delay out of lo loading a page, they'll you know prefetch every they'll pre look up every domain name on a page, you know in the in anticipation of somebody possibly clicking on one of those links. All right. Well, that was a great synopsis. Um, so thank you guys, all of you, for participating. I think this is the most interesting Ask Mr. DNS podcast we've had in, in some time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of our listeners. <laughs> well, and we certainly appreciate your listening as well. Um, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, if you have questions, please have questions. Uh, send them to... Uh, is it? It's Mr. DNS. MRDNS. MRDNS. Yes. At ask dash 
MrDNS.com. One of these days we'll ring Ask Mr. DNS with no dash away from whoever owns it. Whichever domainer. Yeah, yeah. whoever yeah. has it. Somebody's is it you, Dave? <laughs> they're, hard, just, they're just waiting. <laughs> yes. It's hard to believe. Once we've, once we've achi- achieved a certain level of success. Yeah. <laughs> I sense an opportunity for a new GTLD. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We'll pass the hat. We'll have a Kickstarter campaign to raise the $185,000. <laughs> and $25,000 a year. That's right. That's right. Well, thank you again for listening, and uh, please tune in next time. Bye-bye.